Amen. You can take a seat. Dennis and Faith, thank you all so much. One of the things I love about our church is that we, um, we do seek to sing old songs and new songs. It is, it is so cool to get to sing new songs that give us new language to express our heart to the Lord. There's something about these old songs that our family has sung for hundreds of years. The ones you can sing around a hospital bed with no need for electric guitars or echo pedals or anything like that. It's just so good to worship the Lord with our voices. We talked at different times about just, we love, I mean, if, if you've never sat up in the front, I know some of us, me growing up in class, Give me the back row. Give me the back row. It's just way better. But there is something cool for those of y'all that sit up front. You get to hear the voices of God's people bounce off this wall and hit you, and it's a really beautiful thing. So if you ever want to, come try the front row. It's pretty fun. My name is Christian. Um, I'm one of the pastors, one of the elders here at Cornerstone. I get the opportunity to open God's word for you this morning. Uh, Todd, our senior pastor, is on vacation, um, and their vacation has gone a little different than they planned. The family they went to go visit contracted COVID. Um, they've come home. A couple of the, the nice wongers know that they've got COVID, and so if you, they'll be quarantining for a couple weeks. Um, if you would just keep them in prayer, uh, uh, that we would, we would really appreciate that. As some of you know, Todd lost his father last year to COVID, so this does hit pretty close. Actually, before we start, can we pray for them? Let's do that. Jesus, thank you so much for Todd, for Lisa, for Brianna and Josiah, and for Ryan and Jace. Thank you for their family. Lord, thank you for uh, just the way you hold them in your hands, and I pray that in the midst of this, um, would you give them peace? Would you restore their health and uh, bring them back to us soon, Lord Jesus? We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, before we jump back into First Peter this morning, I think I also wanted to, to take a couple minutes off the front end just to acknowledge the fact that for, for those of you that were with us last Sunday, it was a bit of a bittersweet Sunday, wasn't it? We got to hear Chris Hay uh, speak to, God, to us from God's word one last time before his retirement. Uh, they are way off in the hills somewhere in their RV enjoying their first week of retirement. Um, but yeah, that was so sweet to get to hear from him one last time, um, but also hard to say goodbye. And as many of you know, we also had uh, announced last week that, that Terry and the Earwood family have decided to, to head back to Georgia this month. Um, move back home. And so that's another one that's just, it's hard to say goodbye. We're gonna have time. Mark your calendars, September 5th. I know it's Labor Day weekend, but that Sunday we'll have some time where we're, hopefully we get to really bless and send off the earwoods well. But again, it's hard to say goodbye to those we love. And I guess I just wanna remind you, church, as my family, that for those of us who trust in Jesus, we have the promise from God that no matter how many times we have to say goodbye to people we love, those goodbyes are not forever. That even though the season of time where we got to walk closely with Chris and with Terry has come to a close, we have the promise of forever together. We truly do have endless time to be with those we love who trust in Jesus, which is such a glorious thing. And I guess I also want to remind you that for those of us that are still here in Simi Valley, we still have important work to do here in Simi Valley. Amen? While none of us knows for sure if we have tomorrow, I know that I can speak for myself and I think I can speak for the rest of your pastors and elders to say that we are just as committed 
to seeking God's will here in Simi Valley and serving Jesus here in Simi Valley as we've ever been. I wanna put something up as we get started this morning up on the screen. This is our mission statement, and I would say this to you. If you have not yet committed this statement to memory, I would encourage you to do so. This is why we exist as a church, to give every individual an accurate picture of God by helping those who believe become fully devoted followers of Jesus. This is not just the pastor's mission or the staff's mission. If you are a follower of Jesus and you are committed here at Cornerstone, this is your mission too. And this mission is worth it. It is worth our energy, our focus. It is worth arranging our life so that we can engage in that mission of representing Jesus in our community, so that we can engage with this family it's worth minimizing other things or maybe even eliminating other things that might be good but would pull you away from this family and this mission because our identity in Christ and as his people takes precedence over everything else. Amen? Would you agree with that? We're about ready to get started with school, many of us, this next week. There will be many things to prioritize and schedule, and it will be so tempting for this to be one of those things that gets what's left, what's left over if we have time for it. Not just gathering on Sunday, but I mean relationship with people in this church. And I would say to you, this takes precedence. This past year and a half has brought so much to us that's been confusing and, and frustrating and relationships are strained or even broken because of just the, so many of the, the things that have gone on this past year. And I would say to you, we, like pretty much every church in America right now, are asking many of the same questions. Who's still with us? Who, who's left? Have they let us know that they've left? And maybe why they left? Where are they now? Are they, are they at another church? Who might still be with us, but at this point they're still just engaging online so we might not know that they're with us? Who's maybe left for a while going on a little walkabout but might eventually come back? Who's here now because they left their previous church over the last year and a half? And have they told their previous church yet that they're here now, right? These are many of the same questions we're all wrestling with. And I guess I just wanna say this off the outset. To those of you who have stuck with us over the past year and a half, thank you. I know it hasn't been easy. Uh, you may not have always understood all the decisions we made, or maybe you wished we would have made different decisions on specific issues, but I would just say as one of your elders, thank you for trusting us. Thanks for sticking with us. I'm confident that we as your elders, we've, we've sought to lead you in, in obedience to scripture, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And I know we haven't always done it perfectly. I'm sure there were things that we could have said clearer or, or better or perhaps just said more often. But I do believe that we have sought to be faithful to God's word in the way that we've led the church. And so thank you for those of you who've trusted us. I would say this to those of you who maybe have come to Cornerstone over this past year. Uh, perhaps because you, you appreciated the way that we were trying to navigate things. I would say to you as well, welcome. So glad to have you. Over the next few months, our hope really is, our fall, the first part of the fall, we really want to focus in on clarifying what it means to be committed as a member at Cornerstone, to, to commit to a mission of being disciples who will make disciples. And I hope that you will join us in that commitment. But let me say one more thing to you before we jump back into 1 Peter. If you have come to Cornerstone from another church over the past year and a half and you have not yet 
talked with the leaders at your previous church about not just that you left, but your desire to be here now. Please do that as soon as possible. I speak from experience. They want to know. Not just what happened or why you left, but they especially want to know that you've come underneath the leadership and care of other shepherds. That you're, you're not trying to do this lone ranger Christianity thing that has yet to lead anyone to spiritual health and maturity. So I would just say that. If you're here now, but your previous shepherds don't know that, please have that conversation this week, okay? All right, let's jump back into 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. And what I want to do in the rest of our time this morning is kind of two parts. I kind of want to recap what we've seen in 1 Peter up to this point and then launch us into what the rest of the book is all about. Because where we're at in the middle of 1 Peter chapter 2 really is kind of like the pivot, the hinge of the whole book. We chose to go through this book this summer because in some ways it deals with a lot of the same things that we've been dealing with over the last year and a half. We saw back at the very beginning of the letter in, in the very first verse that Peter writes to a group of people that he calls elect exiles of the dispersion. That their faith in Jesus has, led them, has made them become outsiders in their community. They don't fit in anymore. They're, they're, they're exiles. They're foreigners. They don't fit there anymore. Possibly, he's writing to a group of people that were even forcibly removed from their communities by the Roman Empire and resettled in other areas of what's modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. People who, because of the government, said, pick up, we're moving you, you're going to live here now. And now they're dealing with all their social networks kind of being disrupted. Even local church structures being disrupted. Could it be that they're sitting there going, the people I used to follow Jesus with, they're in that town now, in that town now, in that town now. The elders, the pastors that I used to follow, they're over here now. What do I do? They're incredibly disoriented, hurt, confused, probably enraged at government overreach to a much greater extent than what we've experienced. And so Peter writes this letter to them, telling them, okay, I know in some ways the snow globe got shaken and it's hard to tell what's going on right now, but I'm writing to you to tell you, and I would say to tell us how to regroup and get back on mission. He helps them regroup and get back on mission by reorienting their identity and their, their calling in three ways. He reminds them throughout this book of who they are in relation to God, who they are in relationship to each other, and then who they are in relation to the unbelieving world around them. Does that make sense? If you're going to find your bearings, if you're going to figure out where you are on this map as everything's got shaken up, let me, let me help you triangulate your position by remembering who you are in relationship to God, in relation to each other, in relation to the world around you. In the sections that Todd's taken us through thus far in chapters 1 and 2, he deals with the main sections that talk about those first two orientations, who we are in relation to God and to each other. And where we're at today is where he, Peter pivots, and he says, this is who you are in relationship to the world. So in order to prep for that, let's, again, let's just take a moment to remember what has Peter told us about who we are to God and who we are to each other. Look, chapter 1, verse 3. Peter again says, he's blessing God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. We are those who have been born again, caused to be born again by God, right? 
And so later on in that chapter, in verse 14, he says, okay, you're those who have been born again by God, so now you are his obedient children. Who are you in relation to God? You are his child. We are his children. And he says, as his children, don't be conformed to the way you used to live. But as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. Be like your father. He says in verse 17, again, you call on him as father. You have this father-child relationship with the God of the universe. But do not forget that your father is the one who judges everyone impartially according to their deeds. So in relation to this father, conduct yourself in fear throughout the time of your exile. I love the way that, that, that Todd walked us through that, that this fear is not the kind of abject terror that makes us flee from God, but a deep sense of God's awesomeness, his, his sovereignty that makes us run to him, but not run to him in a flippant way of, yeah, yeah, me and God are cool, but with a sense that, no, my, he is my father, but my father is a big deal. All of my life is lived before him. All of my life and my motives and my thoughts are open to him and he judges everyone impartially. Not only that, not only is my life open to him, but because I now relate to him through Jesus Christ as his child, everything that I say and do to those around me in the world around me reflects on my father. I represent my father, and I do not, we do not want to bring shame on our father's name. So we conduct ourselves in the fear of God. But then later on in chapter 1, verse 22, he says, okay, if we are now those who've been born again by God, and he is our father, and we are his children, what does that make us to each other? Siblings brothers and sisters. So he says, you've purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love that when you believed in Jesus Christ, whether it was on your mind or not, at that moment of your conversion, you were trusting in Jesus not only for rescue from judgment, not only for the hope of resurrection and life forever with God, but you were saved for sincere brotherly love. This is what your life is to be about now. Loving one another, he says, earnestly. I love how Todd walked us through that. This is the idea of stretching love. Love that stretches. Love that in the midst of tension and misunderstanding presses in further because we're family and we want to figure out how to love one another. This is not a, like I said before, I'll love you with, when I get around to it with whatever I've got left. This is a love that takes precedence over other loves. So as you think, again, toward this fall and this next school year, how are you going to position your life and your family's life to love the people in this room stretchingly? Where do you need to make room? What else might you need to deprioritize or put to the side so that we can commit ourselves to a sincere brotherly love? Because that's who we are in relationship to each other, right? Later on in chapter two, he uses temple imagery to describe our relationship to Jesus. He talks about Jesus as this living stone that was rejected by men and the sight of God is chosen and precious. A couple of verses later, he uses that word that is the name of our church, calling Jesus the cornerstone, the one that all other angles are lined up to in the construction of this temple. We all align ourselves according to him. And he says, because Jesus is that living stone in God's temple, 
we also, like living stones, are being built up in line with him and in connection with each other to be this spiritual house, this house for God's spirit. I love how Dennis said that before. The spirit who lives within us as followers of Jesus. This is who we are. Who are we in relationship to Jesus? He's the cornerstone. We build our lives around him. Who are we in relationship to each other? Well, we don't... Re- <laughs> We don't represent Jesus like just some random rock strewn all over a hillside or even those cute little ones that people like to paint and leave different places around town right now. We represent Jesus as, as living stones. We are built together around him. Again, that relationship with God, relationship with each other, this is how everything in our lives begins to take shape. The church, the family of God is central to who, if you are a follower of Jesus, God's church is central to who you are and what you are called to do with your life. This is essential. All of this comes together in what Todd took us through two weeks ago in chapter two, verse nine, where Peter takes all of these titles that God originally gave to the nation of Israel back in Exodus chapter 19. And by doing this and applying this to this ragtag group of Jews and Gentiles and people from all over the place and giving us the same titles and identity that God gave to Israel, he's saying you're part of that same family line. You are connected to this same story of God's people stretching all the way back to Abraham when God called Abraham into a life of exile as a foreigner and said, I'm gonna bless you and make you a great nation, not just so that you can enjoy my blessing, but because I am gonna now bring blessing to all nations on earth through you. And Peter brings all of that and lays out on our shoulders as God's people, and he says, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession." And why do we get all of this glorious, completely undeserved, honorable identity? Because God's purpose is now to enlist us in his mission. We enjoy this so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into, our, into his wonderful light. If you are a follower of Jesus, again, this is who you are and this is what your life is about. Whatever your age, your gender, your education level, whatever industry you might work in, even if there's no industry you work in because you're out of work right now, your primary mission in life is as a proclaimer of God's excellencies, telling others of his greatness telling others of what he has done for you and not just with our mouths, but displaying with our lives the fact that this excellent God, his grace is transforming and changing us. That's what we live for. All the different jobs, professions, neighborhoods, hobbies that we do, these are all just different contexts in which we get to carry out the calling that God has put on our lives of making him known. But as we do this, Peter, um, he has no pretenses that it's gonna be easy. It's not all gonna be puppy dogs and rainbows, as we say. Remember, Peter's writing this, these glorious truths to a group of people who have been rejected and ostracized and ridiculed because of their faith in Jesus. And they're reeling from it. And in the midst of all of this tension, some in this group, undoubtedly, are kind of going, you know what we should do is we should just kind of create a safe little holy huddle to be together and protect each other from the big bad world out there. Other people are going, heck no, we need to put our swords on our sides and get out there and start swinging. 
We need to fight the people who are putting us down. We need to fight against our exile. This should not be happening. We should be able to tell people what this should be like. We should be able to shape the world the way that we and we think God's word says it should be. Let's fight for it. Then in the middle, you have some people who are kind of going on all sides of this whole thing. Is this really worth it? This whole Jesus thing, is it worth it? Is it worth the tension that it creates within God's church? Is it worth the tension that it creates outside of it? Is it worth what I have to give up, the loss of friends, worth missing out on things that I used to be a part of, missing out on things I've never tried but look really fun, I'd like to do those things. Would it be better just to go back to how we used to live? And in the midst of all of that tension, Peter meets them right there and he reminds them, okay, Based upon who you are in relationship to God, who you are in relation to each other, here's who you are in relation to the world. And so in chapter two, verse 11, he reminds them of what he told them at the very beginning. He says, I urge you as sojourners, as exiles, as those who don't belong anymore, your new birth in God's family, your new citizenship in God's kingdom, it makes you strangers, foreigners in the world. It doesn't feel like home anymore. And yet your memories and your habits and your friendships make it still feel like home in a lot of ways too. And all of that creates this incredibly disorienting tension. And if you've been a Christian, I would say for any length of time and paid attention, you know this tension that I'm talking about. Our new life in Christ inevitably creates conflict for how we live life in this world. But Peter, in this section, stay tuned, this is really important. He wants to make sure, yes, I know there's a ton of conflict, there's tension. He even says there's a war going on, but he wants to make absolutely clear that we understand where the real conflict lies where the real battle is that we are called to fight. So he continues in verse 11. Look what he says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. That's where the battle is. It's not us against the world. The battle is us against the desires of our flesh and the battleground takes place in our souls. This word that seeks to, not just for the internal invisible part of us, but for the totality of who we are. This battle takes place in here, in me. It takes place in here, in us. This is the battle we're called to fight, not us against the world, but us against the desires of our old way of life. We see this throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 4, talks, Paul uses the imagery of almost like taking off old dirty clothes and putting on new clothes. Put off the old self and put on the new self of who you are in Christ. He gets even more dramatic in, in Colossians chapter 3 by saying who you used to be died with Christ. That guy's dead in the grave. You now live with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. So put to death that old way of life. Don't just manage it. Don't just have an accountability group to talk about it. Kill it. Put it to death. That's the battle, right? 
Galatians 5 says, Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature because the desires of your flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. He goes, this battle takes place in you and guess what? You got the biggest, baddest dude on your team. The Holy Spirit is within you to fight this battle. Don't get distracted by thinking the battle's out there. Abstain from the passions of your flesh that wage war against your soul. But let me ask you this. What does Peter mean by these passions of the flesh? What kind of stuff is he talking about? Being that all of us kind of live in a hypersexualized culture, I'm probably not the only one who, when I read that phrase, the first thing I think is, oh, he's talking about sexual sin. And that's definitely a part of it. Later on in chapter four, verse three, he goes straight at sexual sin, drunkenness, even orgies, that word's in the Bible. And he says to the people, the very people, God's people reading this book, he says, you spent enough time doing those things before you followed Jesus. But now it's time to put those things away. He's writing to a group of people with a very checkered sexual past. And so if you're in this room and that's you too, you're in good company. There is a place for you here. Not to coddle our sexual sin. Not to just follow freely our desires, but to seek to live in accordance to the beautiful picture of human sexuality that God's given us. Absolutely. We're here to fight that fight together. But I don't think Paul's, or Peter's only talking about sexual sin here. I think these passions of the flesh, it's a big, huge way of just talking about that whole way of life that's set against God and his purposes. It includes the things that he said back in chapter two, verse one, when he says that we must, as these newborn infants, put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. The very things that tear down our relationships with each other, that that lead us to be argumentative and divisive and disloyal to each other the desires of the flesh that stand in opposition to the brotherly love that is to define our lives. Again, remember, let me say this again very clearly. Our battle is not out there in the world, but right here in our own lives. It is the battle to turn from sin, to grow in righteousness. It's the battle to love one another even when it's hard. It's the battle to learn to walk like Jesus. This is why throughout this past year, we took time to walk through these things called spiritual disciplines together. How do we grow in our relationship with God? We took time leading up to Easter to study Jesus's life and actions, all with the purpose of learning to walk like him. Some of you asked us or may have wondered why we didn't try to wade more into controversies and conspiracies that were swirling around our world over the last year. And while I would say we didn't try to avoid them, what we sought to do in our role as your elders was to guide you through them while being sober-minded and keeping the right battle at the forefront. Not against the world, but against the desires of our flesh. Does this mean, though, that we just ignore what's going on in the world around us. That's their deal. We just care about us. Not at all. Absolutely not. As we'll see throughout the rest of 1 Peter, we absolutely have a role as God's people to confront evil and injustice in the world. 
But the way that we confront evil in this world is really incredible. We'll see, we'll see it more even next week. We do not confront the world as entitled, judgmental culture warriors. You have not helped the mission of God at all by confronting the world as a keyboard vigilante on social media over the last year. We confront the world as honorable exiles, as respectful guests. Let me show you what I mean. Look again at the next verse. The big fight is against the passions of our flesh. We help each other keep the right battle in mind. Okay, what do we do with the world around us? Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. As Peter's, as a Jewish man speaking of just the entire world outside of God's people, all people outside of the people of God. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. It's actually the same word. The word honorable and the word good there, it's the same one. It refers to something that is conduct that is good or, or noble or, or, or honorable. It says they'll see your honorable conduct and glorify God on the day of visitation. According to Peter, our primary objective, our primary MO in the way that we engage with the world around us is honorable conduct. Seeking to do what is good and noble in the sight of God and in the sight of those around us. That's our main job. Both showing honor to those around us and acting honorably in our lives and relationships. What does that mean? What does is, what is honorable conduct practically look like in daily life? Well, that's what, again, from this point on, what the whole book is about. Peter's gonna address, particular to his time and place, real life circumstances and what it looks like for God's people to conduct themselves honorably. And we'll look at a few of those in the coming weeks. But what I really wanna point your attention to in our last few minutes today is where he goes first. Okay, Peter, you convinced me. Honorable conduct. That's what my life's supposed to be about. What does that look like? Okay, Peter goes, number one, page one of the manual of conducting yourself honorably in the world. Look at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That word institution, it means government, administration, authority. Be subject not just to the documents that form the basis of that government authority, but to the humans who occupy those positions. Let's make that very clear. I've heard too many Christians malign elected officials that they disagree with saying, I honor the Constitution, not that person. The Bible doesn't give us that option. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God. How do we confront the world? By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Page one in Peter's manual to conduct yourself honorable, he says, be subject to submit to human authorities from the highest to the lowest. We don't have an emperor, though you may think certain elected officials might conduct themselves that way. In our day, he might say, be subject, submit to 
the president, the elected officials, the congressman, the governor, the, the CHP officer who pulls you over on the highway for speeding, all the way down to bosses, to teachers, to, to school administrators, to, to your parents. And he says particularly that we do this for the Lord's sake. We do this for Jesus' sake. If you are a Christian, you acknowledge Jesus as your ultimate king, your ultimate Lord. But that acknowledgement of Jesus as king does not give you the right to rebel against the other authorities that are over you because it's your king who says to you here to be submissive to those authorities, to place ourselves under, to acknowledge and follow their directions. Except, of course, when obeying their commands would lead us to disobey God's commands. I think we've been clear on that over this past year. As we've said many times, we will submit to our governing authorities unless they command what God forbids or forbid what God commands. But even in those circumstances where we may not be able to obey our human authorities, Peter says later in verse 17 that we are still called to honor them. To speak honorably to them. To speak honorably about them to others. Even in the things we post on social media. If you want to see what this looks like, honoring authorities, even when we cannot obey them, I would direct you to read the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. It is a master class on what it looks like to conduct yourself honorably and even honor authorities when you cannot obey them. But as you'll find in the book of Daniel, and as Peter reminds us here, if you choose to live this way, it will not be smooth sailing. I would say, if you choose to commit yourself to honorable conduct for the Lord's sake in the world around us, here's the second thing I would say to you. Expect to be misunderstood expects to get misunderstood. Peter says, if you commit to live life this way, to, to, to keep the main battle in mind and fight against our own sinful desires, and then act honorably and speak honorably to those around us, expect to be misunderstood. Look what he says again in verse 12. Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you. Not if they speak against you as evildoers. When they speak against you as evildoers, you will be misunderstood. It will happen. Our efforts to honor those around us, to conduct ourselves honorably, even when we get it right, which we won't always get it right, but even when we get it right, we should expect to be misunderstood, to still be accused as evildoers. And when that happens we are going to want to plead our case, to argue our point, to fight the accusations. Ultimately, we are going to want vindication. We are gonna be want to be vindicated, to be proved right, for people to see our motivations for what they really are, to understand what we were really trying to do, not just the way that they perceived it. I can tell you, this past year and a half, I have never prayed more or more frequently for vindication than I have over this last year and a half. And Peter says, one day we will be vindicated. One day they will see our good deeds and glorify our Father on the day of visitation. This is where Peter, the disciple of Jesus, is quoting words 
that Jesus himself said to him back in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus in his beatitude said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus says, that's the way they treated the prophets before you. He goes on to say, when that happens, don't think you're doing something wrong. In, any ways, in many ways, that's a sign that you're on the right track. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth, he says. That's what it means to be the light of the world. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they might see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. When we seek to do good, but our actions are interpreted as evil, what do we do? Like Dory said in Finding Nemo, you just keep swimming. <laughs> keep doing good. Don't change course. Keep doing good. Even if no one else sees or understands what you're trying to do, Jesus says later on the Sermon on the Mount, we have a Father in heaven who sees in secret, and he is able to reward us, and even one day to vindicate us before the eyes of those who misunderstand us. But when, when will that vindication come? Again, Peter says here in verse 12, it will happen on the day of visitation. Okay, well, when's that? There's two main ways that people have understood this phrase, day of visitation. On the one hand, it could be talking about the way or the day in which an unbeliever who maligns us will have their eyes open to the truth of the gospel and be saved. They are visited with salvation. And, and we see that in scripture, right? The apostle Paul is the clearest example of this. He was so absolutely sure that what Christians were doing was evil that he was on a mission to throw them in prison and even put them to death. And then one day on the road to Damascus, boom, Jesus visited him, right? Visited him and, said, and Peter saw the light, or Paul saw the light and he was never the same again. He glorified God instead, right? Maybe that was you. Maybe you had friends or family members who were followers of Jesus and for years you just thought they were weird or just straight up wrong. And then one day God opened your eyes to the gospel and you saw those people in a different light and you go, oh my gosh, I see the beauty of it now. That could be what Peter's talking about and we do see that play out. But I actually think probably the clearest way to understand this idea of a day of visitation is as a reference to the return of Jesus. The ultimate day of visitation where Jesus visits to remain, visits to bring final judgment, make all things new, bring the fullness of his kingdom forever. On that day, the world will know that we were not fools to trust in Jesus. They will know that we were not wrong to try to live differently, to not run after everything that the people were, were running around, after around us, to not fight every battle that people wanted us to fight. Our trust in Jesus, our efforts to walk in the way that Jesus walked will be vindicated. But here's the question. Are you willing to wait that long? Are you willing to embrace exile for that long? When you're misunderstood to refuse to retaliate, to refuse to fight back, to refuse to stoop to the level of your accusers and entrust yourself to God and continue to act honorably. As Peter says in verse 15, this is God's will. 
This is how ultimately we put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Are you willing, as Chris told us last week, to walk along obedience in the same direction and trust that ultimately one day your father will vindicate you? As I draw this to a close, I think what Peter says in verse 17 really sums up everything that we've seen so far. Honor everyone. Everyone. Including those you disagree with. If you can't see how they could possibly believe what they believe, take that as a clue to learn. Oh, let me honor you by seeking to understand what you believe on your terms instead of just shooting it down in the only way I know how to understand it. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. He's gonna keep coming back to this throughout this letter. We've been born into a new family. The way that we love each other as brothers and sisters is critical to our witness to the world. Fear God, he says. He's our father and he's our ultimate authority. And everything we do is not only open to him, but reflects him rightly or wrongly to the world. And honor the emperor. Honor the human authorities over us from the highest to the lowest. Even if you disagree with them, even if you cannot obey them, because to do so would be disobeying God, we are still called to honor them in the way we speak of them, in the way we speak to them, and what we post online about them. And let me say this. Even if you vote to recall one of your human authorities, you are still called to honor them. Let me say that again. Even if you vote to recall a governing authority, you are still called to honor them. I'm not trying to tell you to vote one way or the other. Please do not hear that or email me about that. <laughs> what I'm saying is Governor Newsom, I'll tell you this right now, I have not agreed with many things that he has done. I can be honest with you, I have never prayed for him more in my life than I have over the last year and a half. In many ways, because I see more what it's like to be misunderstood. I see what more what it's like to not know the whole picture, but still have to lead a huge group of people in a direction. And you know what that's done? That's given me compassion. That's given me understanding. I, not, not agreement always. But I will say to you, for my part, I have embraced the calling of God in my life for the Lord's sake to honor and follow the directions of the leaders that he's placed over us. Even if these leaders speak dishonorably or falsely about us and our brothers and sisters, we trust that ultimately it is by doing good that we ultimately will silence their foolishness and hopefully show that there was nothing to their accusations. And as we'll see next week, it is by our willingness to trust God and do good even in the midst of unjust suffering in those moments, we have the opportunity to put Jesus on display in an incredibly powerful way, in a way which I would say, if you look through the history of the church, is the way that the church has actually most powerfully confronted evil in the world and brought about change to social systems. By our willingness to do good and walk the sacrificial suffering path of Jesus. We'll talk more about that next week. But this is the way that we as your elders have sought to lead you over the past year. 
And again, we haven't done it perfectly. You may have been wrestling with some of the same texts, same verses, and come to different conclusions, and that's fine. We don't for a second think that we have the market cornered on understanding all of what it means to walk honorably. But this section of 1 Peter, if you've wondered what was kind of our playbook to navigate the last year and a half, it's, I would say, at least for my part, it's this passage we've looked at right here. The main fight is here, here against our sinful desires. Our main objective with the world is to conduct ourselves honorably and to be, expect to be misunderstood and trust our ultimate vindication to God. As we embrace our identity as God's elect exiles in the world, we must keep these things in mind. I would say this is absolutely critical to what we mean by giving every individual an accurate picture of God, by what we mean by growing to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. Does that make sense? Would you pray with me? Jesus, this is a hard road. Not just hard because of the things that are imposed on us from outside, but hard because it grates so much at our desire for life the way we want it. But we see that from the moment that our first father and mother made that choice to define good and evil and their rights on their own terms, it has brought about so much death and destruction and captivity in our world. Jesus, thank you for showing us a different way, a better way, as next week we look specifically at your example for us to follow. Would you cause us to trust you, Lord Jesus? We ask this in your name, amen.